All right, welcome everybody. This is Revelation uh, chapter six, part four. There's a debate on that. Could be part three. Um, and it's June 11th, and this is Meet. Listen, if you want to know what campus is all about, we did a, a sermon teaching this morning in Milk, and that's going to be up on the forefront of the website. But I challenge you to watch that so you can hear what kind of the uh, way we see church gatherings, study, stuff like that. It's all laid out there. And um, anyway, let's have a word of prayer and uh, hear, sing the word of God set to music, and then we'll get into our verse by verse. A lot of interesting stuff. Excuse me, there's a, a question from the audience. Absolutely, we will do that at the conclusion. We will do it. Why not do it twice? Lord, bless Daryl and uh, Robert meeting with Daryl and whoever else will be involved and talking to him about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us now. Send your spirit. We thank you for it. And help us to be uh, in tune to what your spirit says according to your word. We know there's no contradiction there. And so we pray that we will be in harmony with what you want us to know. Guide my words, uh, forget the things that aren't right, and uh, help us to seek you in spirit and truth. Uh, we pray for those who are struggling and trying to understand you in a better way, maybe becoming despondent, and we pray that you will be with them uh, mightily so they'll recognize your presence in their lives. So help us as we listen to the word set to music and then get into our continued verse by verse of Revelation chapter three that will have greater understanding with each of these passes through that difficult book. We love you, Lord, and we seek you. In Jesus' name, amen. Things work together for good to those who love. Worship. 
himself. He said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me, teaching us doctrines of Defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth? This defiles a man. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but the What goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth? This defiles a man. And whoever
All right, a quick review with some added insertions on how I see these seals uh, working with some re recapitulation of my own. We talked about how the book of Revelation recapitulates, and so I'm going to do that to fill in some needed blanks. Much of what is foretold in the breaking of the seven seals is uh, recapitulated with new imagery in chapters 8 through 11, which we haven't gotten to, uh, which includes seven trumpets, which signal some of these things to happen that we're reading in chapter 6. The seven bowls also signal things to happen that we're reading about in 6, and the seven bowls is covered in chapter 16. So in these chapters, new information, new symbolism is added throughout each successive revelation. And uh, so our vision and our understanding of the seven seals is kind of limited if we only read what it says about them here. Um, so forget literal chronology, the whole revelation uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 22 continues to unfold new elements that happened in the former chapters. And so the way we have studied this verse by verse, it, it causes us to have to go back and talk about what this could have meant. If I knew the book better, if I had really, really studied the whole thing before teaching it, I would be aware of some of the factors that were coming up in chapter 16 and incorporate them into what we're talking about here. But I'm, I'm not an expert on the book. And so... Uh, on we go. We also have to remember that Revelation is a continuation of Daniel chapter 12. In the Old Testament, Daniel receives a vision and the angel of the Lord, which I believe is a, what would we call a Christology, uh, tells Daniel, seal up this revelation. Seal it up, put the seals on it, don't open it, right? And, and uh, but what we are reading now is the unsealing of what Daniel was told. And so that's what the first seven seals being opened up is. It's an unsealing of what Daniel was told to seal up. So uh, it's also important, and this is really important to me, that to remember that the book of Revelation was not written in chapter and verse. In fact, none of the Bible was. And so as a quote-unquote aid to uh, readers inciting the Bible, chapter and verse, um, it was put in that form, and that's very um, legalistic. If you've ever looked at a lawyer's uh, thing that they write on or when you make a deposition, they have lines with numbers on them, and they refer to those lines so that they can cite them chapter and verse, and it lends to argumentation. Well, on page 7, line 4, paragraph B, uh, word 2, it says, and, and so... That's a very different way to read scripture than how it came to us. It came to us as one narrative. And I would have thought that maybe if, if this was God's perfect word, it would have come to us in chapter and verse if that's how it was supposed to be. So we make a big deal about not adding or taking away from the scripture. But by putting chapter and verse, the scripture in chapter and verse, I think we have added and taken away from it because we don't read it in this flowing way. We read it in terms of what does this verse say? And then we make arguments based off the one verse instead of reading the whole thing. So it's funny to me that we've done that, but that's a, a complaint for another day. Uh, the direct problem relative to reading Revelation with chapter and verse is they cause us to stop 
sometimes. We're reading and we just stop. Okay, that was chapter six. And that was never really intended to be. It really should be read as, you'll notice that it's the apocalypse, it's the revelation, it's not revelations. So it's one thing. And that's why I'm really teaching it in, a, in an inferior way because I don't understand the book fully. And so I'm teaching it verse by verse, which is admittedly an inferior way to do it. Taking the whole book and looking at it, it really seems to be composed of six visions plus some other stuff. And most of these visions present a sequence of events that are going to occur between the time Jesus comes and the end of the age. And so on the board, I've, I've listed what they are. Those are the six visions in Revelation as I see them. You may differ. And, you know, uh, so from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation 6, 17, that's the first one. Second vision, Revelation 7, it continues to the end of 11. And that vision covers the sealing of the 144,000 and the sounding of the seven major trumpets. And we can go on and on. I can tell you what they're all about, but uh, let me put it to you this way. I believe all of those six visions on the board are covering elements of the same time period. And they're just bringing different ways to understand what's happening during that same time period. So if you see the book of Revelation in this way as six visions, which obviously represent the same content over and over again, it's going to help with confusion about reading it in this way that I'm approaching it because we are constantly recapitulating and going back and covering things that have already been covered. Um, nevertheless, that being said, here in chapter six, we read about John's vision of opening six of the seven seals. And though the seals are opened before the seven trumpets are blown, because the seven trumpets aren't gonna be blown until chapter eight, we will know when we get to chapter eight, ah, oh, the six seal stuff didn't happen until after the trumpets were blown. Um, so try to see it like this. Let's say that you had a vision from God and it was a vision of a vacation that you were going to take to Hawaii. The, and, and there were six of them. In the first vision, it was all about, uh, let's say, the hotels you were going to stay in. And so you have a vision of the consecutive hotels, but of course, there's a lot that goes on between you moving into each hotel. And the second vision is all about the foods you'll eat while you're in Hawaii for two weeks. So it gives you this different stuff about each of these foods, and they're kind of in an order, but it doesn't mean that when you get to Hawaii, you're gonna eat all those foods right in a line. It's gonna have to mix in with the hotels that you go to. And so you can make vision three, four, five, six, your, you know, your travels, your activities, your ocean adventures, um, the luau's you attend or whatever. So, and then if you just read each of them by themselves, they're not sufficient. But if you take all of the content and then mesh them in together, we get what Revelation is trying to tell us from the advent of Christ to the end of that age. And I, that is from my view of how I would understand it. And I, and I personally do not give much uh, future credence to the book as it happening literally. Although there are spiritual themes that might reoccur constantly, I just don't see it as, as a literal book for our future, but instead being to the, to church, uh, uh, the churches at um, Asia Minor 
and for them and their use literally. So the fact that the six seals describe historical events that were fulfilled after the sounding of the sixth trumpet is similar to the way the Bible will discuss future events in the present term. Let me give an example. In Matthew 23, 38, Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple, he says these words, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Okay. When he said that the house was not desolate, but he said it in words that sounded like it's already happened. So when we read that, we'll think, okay, the house was desolate, but it's not. That's the way that they would speak. Revelation does the same thing. Uh, in Revelation 14, 18, an angel predicts and warns of the impending fall of Jerusalem by saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. But that has not occurred yet at this point in time in the book of Revelation. But the angel says, fallen, fallen. So in your vision, it says, and he had eaten a great steak at the Maui Steakhouse. And boy, was it good. But you hadn't even been to Hawaii yet. So it makes it difficult to try to put it together unless you spend a heck of a lot of time, which is what we're trying to do. So when John received this vision, he received the uh, six seal, seven seals, and this is what he has at this time, and this is that vision, Revelation 4, uh, uh, the first one, and then the second one, which we'll get to uh, in the weeks to come. So I wanna work through the first five seals again because as I've understood this now, I've gone through and been able to find things that, that are in the book of Revelation that were not included in my explanation of seals one uh, through five. So I'm gonna read them quickly and we'll go through. Verse uh, one of chapter six, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were a noise of thunder and one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And I reiterate strongly that this is emblematic of Jesus Christ, him coming forth on the white horse to conquer all things through his shed blood, his life and his death. That he accomplished all things is definitely scriptural. I don't have them before me now, but we could talk about all things he has had the victory. This horseman riding on the white horse into battle is depicted again in Revelation chapter 19, 11 through 16. And in verse 16, the one riding that white horse is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in Revelation down the road in chapter 19, we have support to say the right white horse rider is Christ. Now I have read interpretations uh, uh, already this week about the white horse and people say it's enemies, or it's Rome, it's, it's destruction, it's this, and I just don't see it as that. In both cases, the rider on the white horse is Jesus Christ, the divine son of God. Uh, in fact, if we go to the Old Testament, Habakkuk uh, chapter three, the Lord is depicting on coming in the clouds in judgment, riding horses, that's verse eight, and carrying a bow, that's verse nine. Habakkuk chapter three, verses eight and nine. So that's a depiction, again, that is correlated to Revelation chapter one, uh, chapter six, verses one and two. Uh, the horseman is said to be a conqueror. That word conquering, the one on the white horse came forth conquering. If you're taking notes, and those are your home who are, uh, Revelation 2, 7, 11, 17, 26, Revelation 3, 5, 12, and 21, all describe Christ as conqueror. So we have more scriptural precedent that says the white horse rider is conquering and 
this word is used, I don't think by mistake, in Scripture. Seven of them in the book of Revelation of itself. And then in Revelation 3.21, which I just mentioned, it says, we read, He who conquers, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as also I conquered, talking about Jesus, and sat down with my father on his throne. So we have that word, that very word assigned to Christ as the one who conquers. So, uh, and then in Revelation 5.5, it says, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that to open the book. Again, another reference in Revelation itself saying that the one on the white horse is conquering and ties conquering to Jesus. So to me, it's without question that the first horseman is none other than the conquering Christ. Second seal, verse three of chapter six. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So I saw the red horse. Uh, we, I would suggest that it's warfare poured out upon the early church, the faithful of the early church, and culminating in the greatest number of Christian martyrdoms in 67 AD of the apostolic church. And that's recorded history. The writer is commanded to take peace from the earth with the white horse being the prince of peace, the red horse following after coming to take peace is emblematic of uh, everything that turned against the saints for receiving the prince of peace. Um, at the death of Nero, the Jewish war came to a halt. So we have some spaces, but we ha and then though the Romans had ceased their attack, the, the people were still not at peace. There was great unrest. And just like my friend um, Roy, I'm having a, Ron, Roy, Ray, sorry, Ray. My friend Ray pointed out, Jesus said when he came, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. So this is to me, he brought on the red horse with the one riding it, carrying a sword. When? Upon the early church. Why? He had come to bring peace and the Jews and the Romans were against it. And he came and he brought that upon the earth, upon them at that time. In Jerusalem, a three-way civil war began and it was headed by a man named John, Simeon and Eliezer. Each fought for control of Israel. And this is after Christ's ascension and before the destruction of Jerusalem. So great unrest among them. And the fighting was, that was caused by these Jews and fighting for power was interrupted by Titus and his attack on Jerusalem uh, after Vespasian rose to the throne and Rome resu resumed its war against Israel, destroying Jerusalem in the end. So I must reiterate, the red horse of non-peace is a symbol it's not necessarily a chronological moment, but it's just the outcome of Christ coming and bringing, uh, conquering people through as the Prince of Peace. By doing that, there was warfare that followed. And then the third seal, and when he'd opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse and him that sat on him had a pair of balances uh, uh, or yoke or law in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. 
I, of course, I see the black horse, very different from what anyone else I've seen or heard, but I see that as a symbol of sin and not of death, which is known only in the presence of the law. That is how we know sin. It's by the presence of the law. What was that rider carrying? I believe he was carrying a law. I don't believe he was, these were balances to weigh the wheat with the penny. Although that is the general interpretation, the way I see it's something uh, very different. Uh, but I would say that where it says a penny for a measure of wheat and a penny for three measures of barley refers to famines that were coming then between the time of Christ uh, ascending and the destruction of 70 AD. Historical records, famines definitely part. And so I think that was symbolic of him saying a penny for uh, wheat and a penny for three measures of barley. And um, these famines would accompany uh, Christ coming in to conquer. We read in Acts, when we're teaching through Acts and milk, that uh, a prophet showed up in uh, Antioch and talked about uh, a famine is coming. He prophesied of this famine and it came to pass that it, it did occur. So I also interpret the rider on the black horse was not told to hurt the oil nor the wine. And I said that I think this is symbolic that the black horse was told don't hurt the believers because oil in scripture is always emblematic of those who have the spirit. And wine is the communal uh, drink to signify his blood. So the horse rider was commanded, don't hurt those who have the oil and the wine. That's a very spiritualized view, very dangerous for me to take that. If you wanna look at it more literally, uh, it could be that the um, rider was told, don't hurt the temple yet. Uh, that's where the stores of oil and wine were. And uh, so don't hurt the temple yet. You can go after the barley and go after the wheat and famine, but don't hurt the stores of the temple. It's also possible, according to uh, somebody in the siege of Jerusalem, he quotes Titus and says that he ordered, quote, that the olive groves and the vineyards be not ravaged. Olive groves and vineyards. So that's oil and wine at the mouth of Titus coming in to invade Jerusalem. He says, don't, this would be, completely in harmony with the black horse's instructions not to hurt the oil and the wine, meaning don't hurt the vineyards or the um, groves. Uh, one last thing also where it says a penny for wheat and how I, this is talking about the famines. We know that that occurs at the siege of Jerusalem and there's some biblical precedents for famine and the color black. So this is a black horse, it's coming in a penny for wheat, barley, wheat, uh, and Lamentations 5.10 says in very Jewish language, our skin is black as an oven from the scorching heat of famine. So that might, the revelation uh, unsealing of the black horse coming forth and talking about things relative to famine could tie into the fulfillment of Lamentations 5.10 where, where the Jews said our, black, our skin is black as an oven from the scorching heat of famine. That's such... Um, uh, picturesque language. It's, it's different. We would never think of the scorching heat of famine making our skin black as an oven, but that's how they would talk. So, um, and then there's a passage in Revelation 26, 26, which some believe is a fulfillment of the black horse prophecy. Uh, and when I have broken the staff of your bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in one oven and they shall deliver your bread again by weight and you shall eat and not be satisfied. 
Here's another Hebraism to indicate a famine. And so that passage ties into what it says here in Revelation 6 and the seal with the black horse. Um, <clears throat> we can't, imp- we can't, I hadn't, haven't really covered it too much, but we can't uh, discount the impact famine had on Jerusalem from the historical record. Uh, one record says that a man stewed straw uh, to eat, not a very satisfying meal. Uh, another one says they ate their own waste. And then, of course, we are familiar with Josephus, who said he personally witnessed, and you remember Josephus was allowed to travel with uh, Titus's army as a Jew historian. He had favor with them, and he was able to go and watch the destruction of his people and record it. He says he watched a woman eating her own child, cannibal, cannibalizing. So famine was a gigantic part in what was about to happen on those people. And this, four, this third horse from the mouth of John in the vision is warning the seven churches. This is what's about to shortly occur. The fourth seal. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard a uh, voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him and power was given unto them, hell and death over a fourth part of the land to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Those are four ways that John is told that people are going to die their death. And um, as I shared last week from scripture, this I believe was the result of Judaizing. Christ had given his message to conquer, war breaks out, the Jews brought back, tried to bring back in the law and say you have to follow the law which brings in death because then we used all those scriptures that showed Paul said the law is equivalent to death because the law brings about sin. These deaths, according to the fourth seal, came about by sword, by famine, by pestilence, and beasts of the earth. Were, these were all modes of death that are supported by uh, secular history of the destruction of Jerusalem. In his history of the Jewish war, Josephus describes the civil war and famine that was in, uh, introduced by the four horsemen. And he says, quote, nor was there any place in the city, talking about Jerusalem, because that's where this is centered on, that had no dead bodies in it, but what was entirely covered with those that were killed either by the famine or the rebellion. So there's famine and sword. And all was full of dead bodies which had perished either by that sedition or by that famine, end quote. So Josephus' secular history supports what the fourth seal is and third seal are describing. After Jerusalem was conquered, Titus exiled 97,000 Jews, of many of whom, according to Josephus also, were killed in Roman amphitheaters. And Josephus says, by sword and wild beasts. So we have a fulfillment of that uh, uh, fourth uh, way of death that's introduced by the pale rider that where these wild beasts are killing Christians. It was when 97,000 Jews were taken from uh, uh, Jerusalem to Roman amphitheaters and they were fed to the lions, essentially. That's a real-time application. I don't know how to apply it to the future. And this is the quote that actually he gives 
Titus also sent a great number of them into provinces as a present to them. So he took 97,000 Jews and he said, here, I got a present for you, that they might be destroyed upon their theaters by the sword and by wild beasts. That's a direct quote from, uh, from uh, Josephus. That's a fulfillment of exactly how the, uh, the rider of the pale horse is taking life. And then we come to the fifth seal, which we covered last week. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. That would be those who stuck to their faith and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, Oh, how long, O Lord, holy and true, does thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So now we're talking about the Christian martyrs who were put to death at this time, not the ones who were killed in the theaters uh, later. That's not, that's not the same ones. These are ones who were killed. And we always begin with Stephen being the first Christian martyr. And then James who was killed and uh, all the apostles apparently, according to Fox's book of martyrs, were put to death in some horrendous way can't really uh, validate it, but apparently crucified upside down, boiled and all this other stuff. So as we wrapped up last week, I am simultaneously convinced that the description of these martyrs who were put to death for the word of God and for their testimony, uh, beginning with Stephen, that they were told to wait. And, and the angel tells them when they're crying, wait a micron tech, chronos, wait a short time till the rest of your brethren are killed, and then I'll come and avenge. So that too fits perfectly in with the time frame of Jerusalem being destroyed. Uh, this opened us up to a number of ideas about the situation of the souls in the uh, afterlife. We talked about, we wondered if they you know, these souls are crying up to God and they're saying, when will you avenge our blood? And we were saying they're involved in things on this earth and they're asking God to, to be just upon injustices that they experienced. And we talked about that. We are not involved in a literal chronology. It could be these souls are those also who are waiting the resurrection, whose lives were surreptitiously taken. Jerusalem was well known for killing prophets. And... Um, in fact, Jesus said, I'm going to quote, therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers, Jerusalem he's talking about, some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your own synagogues and pursue from town to town. So right there, we know Jerusalem was known for putting to death people who had uh, faith. Acts 8, 1 through 3, 12, 1 through 4, and 26, 10 record the persecution the early church believers faced in Jerusalem right after the death of Jesus. Soon after they were being put to death and Jesus told them you're going to be put to death. Paul was told, I mean, Ananias who gave Paul his sight, Ananias was told by God, go give him his sight because I'm gonna show him the great things he will suffer. It was a time of suffering that we cannot imagine and so that's what this is speaking to. And remember, listen to this words really closely, Luke 18, seven through eight. This is what Jesus says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, listen to this line, who cry out to him day and night. 
Well, this is exactly what those souls are doing that, are, that were martyred, that are under the altar. They're crying out to him. He says, will not God bring justice? Will he keep putting them off, Jesus asks. I tell you that he will see that they get justice and quickly. That's micron. So back in, in Luke, when Jesus walked the earth, he said, let me tell you something, within a generation, 40 years, this stuff's coming down the pike and the martyrs are going to be justly uh, um, revenged, if you want to use that word, by God for their shed blood. Perfect fit with what's going on in real time history of Jerusalem. So it appears to me, at least the rest of the book of Revelation is God's response to these cries for justice that were mentioned by Jesus in Luke 18 and Revelation 6.10. That's what I think all these visions that we go back to and are showing these different things are telling us this is what is happening. So the sixth seal, let's read it together. Beginning at verse 12, chapter six. Ah. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal and lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became as blood and the stars of heaven fell into the earth even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? Now, Obviously, we have come to what scripture calls the day of or the great day of the Lord. And that would be, and I'm not using the scripture to prove it, the return with reward and judgment as promised. That's his return. And some of the events John saw that would occupy, I'm going to cover those specific events in Revelation, but I'm going to do it by covering the events of Matthew chapter 24. So, but before discussing the literal fulfillment of these heavenly warnings that John received, it's important to try and address, address the crux of what is being said. Hebrews 12, 26, speaking of Moses on Mount Sinai says, at that time, God's voice shook the earth, okay? Then he adds, listen carefully, but now he has promised, ready? Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And then the very next verse says, oh, and then there's the very next verse. So that phrase, and yet once more, indicates the removal of what has been shaken to the dust or what cannot exist, which I believe is anything that is made, in order that what cannot be shaken can remain. 
The sixth seal, in my estimation, is a description of this shaking taking place. This is what's going to happen. It begins with an earthquake. And we read about shaking in this, and we're going to read about earthquakes, but that's just of the earthly things. The heavens were shaken too. Everything was shaken that can be shaken so that the only thing that will remain is that which cannot be shaken. And that's what remains today, the things of the spirit, because everything of the flesh and material uh, uh, can be shaken. So, and, and we'll get back to this point he makes here when he says in uh, uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter six at verse, um, at verse 12 through 17. We will talk about each of those, but let me continue on talking about how this is the fulfillment of the writer of Hebrews idea that in Moses' time, the earth shook because of the voice of God. Once more, he's going to come and he's going to shake everything else back up. In Matthew chapter 23, and you might want to turn to chapter 24. We're going to be in it for a couple weeks because to understand the sixth seal, you have to understand Matthew 24 first. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 23 and 22, he laid down some heavy imprecations upon the, the Pharisees. He wondered out loud, how will you ever escape the judgment of Guiana? And what that judgment was, the King James translated Guiana into hell, the judgment of hell, but the real translation is Guiana, which was an actual place. You Pharisees, how are you going to escape being judged by having your bodies tossed in Guiana? Is what he asked. In the first two verses of chapter 24, you know this, his apostles come to him and they're walking. Jesus has been throwing down on the Pharisees. I mean, it is frightening stuff he's telling them. Read chapters 22 and 23 of Matthew. So in the first two verses of 24, uh, they're walking by the temple. And all of a sudden, as they're walking, they're going toward the Mount of Olives together. And as they're walking, the apostles, one of them, I, don't, I think it might've been John, says, look at how wonderful this temple is. To me, it seems like he's trying to lighten the load. I mean, Jesus has been like coming down on heavy stuff. And he just says, look at the wonderful uh, temple. And it didn't work because as they were walking, Jesus says, that wonderful temple, let me tell you something about that. It's coming down. Not one stone will be left upon another. Now, I've always wondered, this is a side note, maybe you don't, maybe you, those of you who have been to Jerusalem, but how do we have a wailing wall with all those stones remaining of the temple if every stone was, was taken down? I don't understand that, so I don't think that's the part of the temple. I think the original temple was in another place, and that wailing wall is just some vestige that we used to, you know, hey, 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 but I don't believe for a second, because then Jesus would have been wrong. Every stone has been taken down. And so if that occurred, it occurred. If it didn't, okay, wailing wall, go at it. So <clears throat> here we come to chapter 24. The setting's the Mount of Olives. Peter, Luke tells us, Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus and they have heard him railing on the Pharisees. They, he has warned them of their impending death and suffering he has told the disciples, this, this thing's coming down. And they were apparently curious of the timing of all these events. So we read 
And as we read, try and keep in mind what we just read in the sixth seal that's gonna come as it's open. Listen to the verbiage that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. It's a little bit long, but it's very interesting. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, Peter, James, John, and Andrew saying, tell us three questions, guys. When will these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age, not world? I know you guys that have been here know this, but we got to study it as we study the sixth seal. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. These are the signs that futurists read from the pulpit today and say, do you see it coming? There's a guy over there claiming Christ. They take and they take all of this and assign it to the future. This is applicable to that day. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet. For nation, that's ethnicities, by the way, not nations. For ethnicity shall rise against ethnicity, tribe against tribe, you could read it, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence, that's in the fourth seal, and earthquakes in diverse places. Remember, earthquakes were mentioned in the opening of the sixth seal. All these are the beginning of sorrows, and they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, second, third, and fourth seal, and shall be, and you, you, Peter, James, John, Andrew, you shall be hated of all ethnicities for my name's sake. Then sh shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another and many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world, the King James says, not the world, all the area, if you want, the Roman Empire maybe, Paul confirms that it was, for a witness against all ethnicities or tribes, and then shall the end come. When will the end be? He's telling them, this is what to look for. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. We're gonna cover that next week. You're gonna get blown away what that means. It's not all this stuff that we've tried to make it believe. Let them that are in Judea flee into the mountains. Let them that are in Judea flee into the mountains. There's a sixth seal. Let him which is on the housetop not come down nor take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field be turned back to take his clothes. This is, a, this is a something going on big time and it's related to that area and that age. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. Pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, okay? For they shall be great then shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen since the beginning of the world to this time, no, ever shall be. That's a big one. People say, oh, we've seen a lot worse. Look at World War II. Look at this pogrom. Look at that. And we're going to talk about that. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Meaning Christians would all die too. 
if those days weren't shortened up by God. Then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say to you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be so shall this coming of the Son of Man be. And wheresoever the carcass is, there will be eagles. There will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. We just read in Revelation chapter six of the sun being dark as sackcloth. Here's another uh, reference to that in the Bible that's giving us a time and place for all this. And the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. All mentioned in Revelation 6, the opening of the sixth seal. And there shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. We're gonna talk about the trumpet in chapter eight. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. The fig tree is mentioned in the uh, chapter uh, in the sixth seal. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise you, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Now, if these things occurred and Jesus didn't come in 70 AD to rescue his church, then the end was not even near or at the doors. It's just events that occurred. But he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. We will talk about that and you'll be blown away by how that manipulation has occurred. Because if we're gonna be fair and honest with the word of generation, uh, we will have an answer heaven and earth shall pass away. That's a Hebraism for heaven and earth being shaken so much that the whole economy has changed to a new administration, all right? But my word shall not pass away. By the way, verse 34 of Matthew 24, this generation shall not pass till all these things shall be fulfilled. C.S. Lewis says it's the most embarrassing verse in all of scripture. Why? Because the Lord himself said it and it didn't happen. That's, what, that's, that's how we explain that. You know, and, and other people use a little bit more uh, scholarship and, and stuff to explain it in a different way. But that is a verse that is really tough to get around. That Jesus is telling those four guys, he's saying, you shall, you shall do this, do that. And he says, this generation shall not tell all these things be fulfilled. Then he says at verse 36, it's a change. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, nor not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as the days uh, that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. And just think about today, how many women do we have grinding at mills in this day and age? Uh, and one will be taken and the other left. Watch ye therefore, for you know not what the hour of your Lord doth come. But know this, 
If the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Six more verses. Therefore, be you also ready. For in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh, who then is faithful and wise servant, whom the Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, whom his Lord, when he cometh, find so doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in that day when he looketh not for him and in an hour when he's not aware and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that ends uh, chapter 24. There's some original lines in John's uh, vision of the sixth seal that are not included in Jesus' description in the Mount of Olives. So there's some things that are added to by John's vision that we don't read. A couple of them, uh, the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. That, that's not used. We know that the sky grew dark, etc., and the moon. And the moon became as blood. We don't read that. All this stuff is just the combining of Revelation 6 with Matthew 24, and we get this description. You'll see, hear people quoting Revelation uh, uh, 6, 12, and use that today. All the, is the moon turning to blood yet? And use that verbiage. But Jesus talked about the moon and the sun. He just didn't use the same words that John did. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth. And the fig tree, <clears throat> when she is shaken <clears throat> of a mighty wind, that word shaken plays right into what the writer of Hebrews said was gonna happen at the end. One more time, I'm going to shake everything down and it will be as a fig tree that casts her figs because of a mighty wind. Peter talks about the heavens and the earth being rolled up as a scroll. We have that being echoed here in John's vision. And John writes at verse 14 in Revelation 6, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. We're gonna talk about the Hebrew way of speaking and what that means uh, using the literature from earlier Hebrew writings about mountains being moved and heavens being rolled up. That's why it's written this way. They understood it. We don't. And verse 15, the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? So six, the seal being broken is the culminating end that I believe Jesus is telling his apostles about in Matthew 24. These things are mentioned in other parts of scripture and they are tied to the days of Jesus. Uh, They are tied to the days Jesus is describing as a means to effectively cover and explain the events of the sixth seal, it's gonna be necessary to explain what Jesus described to his four apostles when they said to him, when is the end? What's it gonna look like? What are the signs? And as we do that, our eyes will open up more to what those first six seals will mean. And then we'll get into the seventh seal. Um, Many believers have been waiting for Jesus to return to initiate the first resurrection. Uh, 
I would suggest to you that they mistakenly do that. He is the first fruits of the grave of many who slept. And he initiated the first resurrection when he rose from the grave. Shortly thereafter, we read in Matthew that others also rose from the grave that were in Jerusalem. In other words, if Jesus rising from the dead, it was Jesus rising from the dead that ignited that first resurrection. And we'll call his resurrection the first fruits of the grave. What most Christians are actually waiting for is the continued resurrection that they'll experience and the resurrection of the damned. There are two. Jesus says some are resurrected to life, some are resurrected to damnation. We know from scripture all will be resurrected. And so Jesus initiated it with his own death and resurrection. We know others start, and I would suggest that all are now resurrected. And I would say, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that the resurrection is entirely spiritual. And so the, getting, jumping a little bit ahead before we just wrap this up, um, I would suggest this, that uh, the resurrection of, um, that we are waiting for occurs when we pass on. It's a spiritual resurrection. It has been going on for 2,000 years. It's spiritual. If you read closely 1 Corinthians 15, we know that corruption does not uh, be, continue to be corruption, that what was physical and material is spiritual. So I believe now Jesus, when he came back, he wrapped that whole thing up for the nation of Israel. He brought, he brought uh, reward and judgment upon uh, Jerusalem. And from that point forward, those who weren't there in his church for him to take with him and rapture up away from that destruction. I believe every believer since when we pass, we experience our own rapture. We experience our own judgment. We experience our own resurrection. It's spiritual and we are in those spiritual bodies ever since. I discount greatly the idea that we're waiting for Jesus to return, for the graves to open up for the past 2000 years of everyone who's ever died to be reconstructed by the elements of their uh, body and to then uh, be resurrected from the grave. I don't think that's uh, um, the way scripture is really describing it, but it goes contrary to the way most Christians see the resurrection and have that hope in this physical body coming out of a, a tomb like Jesus did. He used his body to come back with. I think otherwise it is a magnificent resurrection, spiritually based, not with a shakable thing, but with an unshakable thing. Now, really quickly, Matthew 24 takes place when the Lord and his disciples are talking with him on the Mount of Olives. And he says, this is what it's gonna look like. It was here that Jesus made, if we go back three chapters, if we go back before they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, before he was crucified, Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they put down their coats and they waved palm branches and they sang Hosanna to him. Well, after entering into the historic city of David, uh, Jesus went straight to the temple. And he, when he got there, he drove the money changers out. He overturned the tables. This was incendiary behavior. He was stoking the fire of those who were gonna kill him. And he is throwing the stuff out and, and people are, it's getting the ire of the religious leaders up. And then he retreated to Bethany and he spent the night there. And then as he comes back into the city, remember what happened? He saw a beautiful leafy fig tree 
beautiful tree covered in leaves. And from a distance, it says the Lord was hungry and he went to get fruit from it. And at the closer he got to it, it actually bore no fruit at all. It just had all the appearance of bearing fruit, but it was covered in beautiful leaves, but there's nothing there. And so he cursed it and he touched it and to the amazement of, its, of his disciples, it withered down really quickly. From there, Jesus returns back to the Temple Mount, begins the railing accusations against the Pharisees and his words composed uh, chapter 21 through 23. And he calls them hypocrites, a generation of vipers, blind guides. He heaps upon them a bunch of those imprecations. And then chapter 23 ends with Jesus saying this, upon you shall come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth. Upon you, to those religious leaders. From the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar could be one of those who are crying out to, to God saying, when will you avenge our blood? This Bacharias. Jesus goes on, he says, verily I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Every biblical scholar admits that he was talking to those people then. Futurists, everyone says, when he said this generation, he was talking to them. And then Jesus goes on and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou which kills the prophets and stones them which are sent to thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen would gather her uh, chicks under her wings, but you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Till you shall say he's returned. This is radical, right then applicable stuff. Unquestionably, when Jesus tells them, your house is left unto you desolate, that house was not only the very temple that Jesus stood in, but everything that represented its distinct features as a nation, the temple, the priesthood, the genealogy, the land, left desolate. And that brings us to the content of Matthew 24, which is concurrent with what uh, the sixth seal content is. One final thing, and we'll open up to questions before we, before we go. Um, it's, it's not by mistake that Revelation 6, 12 talks about fig leaves being cast forth. It's not by mistake that Jesus, when he re-enters Jerusalem before he's crucified, he sees that beautiful fig tree and he goes to get fruit and there's nothing there and he curses it and it withers right then. There's no mystery to that. There's no mystery to the fact that they took fig leaves in the Garden of Eden and they made themselves aprons to hide behind because fig leaves are emblematic of, of religion. That's what they did. They covered themselves in appearances. That's what the nation of Israel had done. It, had lo it looked beautiful from far away, but close up, it had nothing to give. And what did Jesus do to it? He touched it and it withered. That was it. It was coming down the pike. And that's what this revelation was given to the seven churches. It's coming down the pike. These are the things that are gonna happen to us. Okay, questions, comments, insights, babblings, rabblings, speaking in tongues. Wendy, Aaron.
Okay, question. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Question about the resurrection. You say it's a spiritual resurrection. Mm hmm. Um, uh, I thought that Jesus was resurrected physically. So I guess my question is why, why would there be a difference in the way that Jesus is resurrected from everyone else? It's a big question. Uh, one, it doesn't ever say that he was resurrected, it says he rose. Resurrection is one very distinct Greek term versus he is risen. He rose with his body because he's gonna come back with his body. But resurrection, I believe, was fulfilled at his return when all things were done in him. That's when the fullness was given to him according to Revelation. That's when the Father gave him everything. So I know that we have always said he resurrected and I could be wrong on this point. But bottom line, he had a purpose. He was coming back. And the way you would notice him coming back was going to be with that body that they pierced his hands and side with. So that's why I believe he rose with it. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 tells me that our resurrection is not the same. Okay. Thank you. Anything else? Brother John, back row. Yeah, this is JS, but... The two things that I've been learning is that uh, in Matthew's 24, I've, I've always wondered why is Jesus telling us what's going to happen? And then it comes about with Erasmus where he wrote, neither the son or the angels know only the father, where he added that. That's not in the Greek. And then the word son is not in the Greek. In so, Erasmus's translation of the Vulgate? Yeah. Mm. So I often wondered about that. Jesus is talking about, you know, prophecy and what's going to happen. And then that verse says he doesn't know what he's talking about. He said, well, he says, of the hour and day, no man knows. He says, these are the signs, but of the hour and day, no man can say but my father. So were those, those verses added? I don't know. I'd have to look at that. You say they are? Uh, yeah. Oh. They were added. We'll check it out. The way I look at it. That's why uh, the King James, a lot of it is overrated, but it's the only book that identifies the Father and where the Father is. Mm. So. Yeah, Erasmus, he, uh, he was unique uh, in his translational stuff, but I think he was good. But there were occasions where he did discite with what the doctrine was of the Catholic Church. So... We'll have to check that one out. Anything else? Robert. So, Sean, do you uh, believe that at some future point from today that those of us who are not, uh, well, we're, we're all going to have a funeral, at least most of us in this room, we're expected to have a funeral, I think, unless something supernatural happens and there is some sort of second coming. But of course, you don't believe that. But uh, will one day, at, at least in some future point, we will be bodily resurrected? I don't think bodily, no. Oh, interesting. No. And so, was Christ, but Christ yet, he was bodily resurrected. Yeah. He was bodily raised. Okay. And uh, in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 27, when people came out from the graves, mm -hmm. uh, well, let me ask you this. 
Resurrection, of course, is, is a New Testament word. And it does refer to Christ being resurrected. Is that right? It refers to him being risen. Okay, but doesn't it use the word resurrection? Anastasius is not assigned to him in the, in the Gospels. Risen is. And it's, irga, it's, it's another word. And so the people that were raised in Matthew 27, I think it is, so they're, they're rising from the dead is similar to Christ, as you see it? Yeah. Okay. Of the house of Israel, probably, showing that Christ had come and he had had victory over the grave, giving them a visual witness for that age to see. But right. Paul's description of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, if you read that closely, most people read through, they read over it. Just go, go home today and read 1 Corinthians 15 and see what he says. And he simply is saying, this body is not going to be what we get. It's going to be a different body. It's going to be a heavenly body. And I believe it occurs now. But keep going, Robert. Okay, so this heavenly body, we will be able to uh, take up a donut maybe and eat it? No idea. Okay. Jesus needed to pick up a donut and eat it because he was coming back. So they would see him coming in the clouds. Right. We know he likes fish. <laughs> and then another question. Um, I've not been to Israel either, but I know of the Wailing Wall. And uh, do some scholars look at the Wailing Wall as part of the buildings, plural, of the temple? Do some scholars look at that, at that in that way? Yeah, I, they may. I just, I just have trouble with that, that temple site. I just, uh, there's some good insights into it being in a different place, and that that wall was not part. Of that mall was a restra restraining wall from another era, and yet that is, you know, held by tradition to be the place. But to me, uh, Jesus said, "Not one stone." And if it was of an, an annex to the original temple, I think that would go down too. And it seems like it did, except for the Wailing Wall. That remains, and I don't know why. Is it, do you accept the possibility that at some future point from today, the stones of the Wailing Wall don't come down? Maybe. Could, I guess. Okay. Yeah. That's all I have. Yeah, good stuff. Anything else? All right, let's wrap it up. Lord, we see through a glass darkly. We're trying to amble through without giving ourselves... Um, tradition. We're trying to read your word and understand it from what your word has to say. So we pray you'll help us. Lord, be with us as we go through this week. Help us with the things that we're involved in, whatever they may be. Be with us in spirit and in truth and help us to, more importantly than anything else, opinion, knowledge, help us to be full of faith and full of love. Move out into this world and be Christians to those who need the message and are seeking and we can Speak to them as you would want us to. We pray for Aldo and his young family in Florida who are leaving religion and seeking a relationship with God. We pray for Jarvis Green fighting cancer, for Leah and her knee surgery, for John Green and his cellulitis. We pray for our uh, brothers, the Wangs guards and loss of their wife and mother and peace and continued thriving for them. We pray for Daniel going to the NFL and we pray that you will use him uh, mightily in his... Uh, in his games, and you'll protect him. We pray for Delaney heading off to school, that you'll protect her as she travels out there and, and help us in our walk. Bless those who are struggling, Lord. We all are in some way or another. 
hear our hearts, make yourself known. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we know with Christ.